the liberals used to say we have to promote the idea of alternative lifestyles as well as normative lifestyles. But now we've gone to a point where we want to smash heteronormativity. So we want to do away with people getting married and having children and promote indecency, degeneracy, and all of these what they would call alternative lifestyles as the new normal. We would literally die out as a species. So we, there will be no people to worship God. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview. Welcome to Outstanding. You've once again found the place where we have conversations about the news of the day and the ideas that shape us. As usual, for better or for worse, I'm your host, Joseph Backholm. And as the culture wars rage on, one of the questions the church is confronting is the degree to which we de-emphasize, if not silence, Christian positions that we know will be immediately offensive to the culture in the hopes of building relationships with them. Now, my guest today, Father Calvin Robinson, has some opinions on that matter, and we're going to talk about it among some other things. He is a priest with the Old Catholic Orders, serving in an Anglican parish in London, England. He made international news, and this is when I came to know of you, Father Calvin, in your speech at the Oxford Union that uh, got some coverage on YouTube, and uh, which is a platform I understand you have helped other people be deplatformed from uh, since then. And that was a, a speech and a conversation about whether Christianity should allow same-sex marriage, and you argued no. And of course, as all decent pe- people have these days, you have, as I mentioned, been deplatformed and you now travel uh, the world, uh, helping encourage the world not to, the church really, not to surrender to cultural whims. And he joins me now in studio here in Washington, D.C., Father Calvin Robinson. Thanks for being with us. Hello. Thank you for having me. This is great. Well, uh, what brings you to the nation's capital, our, our nation's capital. It's my capital. first time in D.C., actually, so I'm quite excited to have a look around. Um, I woke up really early this morning and had a walk down to the White House. Okay. Uh, I, was very, I was very undermined, though. You were? Tell me Not why. Not undermined. I was very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Underwhelmed? Underwhelmed, thank you. Okay. I found the experience underwhelming. It's just a little White House. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't big enough. Did you expect no. something bigger? Yeah, because it's, it's painted as this very grand... Um, place on, in all the movies and everywhere I've seen it. Well, in fairness, you can't get within like a quarter mile of it. So if uh, you're right up next to it, it's a little bigger. Yeah. But I mean, how much? It's, I mean, it's I no Buckingham like Palace, though, is it? House, which is, is okay. a decent sized house yeah, yeah. as far as houses go. But I mean, the, the building next door, what was that? The uh, It wasn't, was it Edgar Hoover building? No, there's a building next door that was much grander. Oh, well, there are many bigger buildings right. in Washington, D.C. than the White House, yeah. to be sure. But what I do like about D.C. is that you can actually walk around the city yeah. and actually, you don't have to get into a car to walk somewhere, yeah. which I find in a lot of places in America. Is, is there still any, like, uh, resentment? About like our our capital, given the you know, the rebellion. That no, we you had guys are welcome back whenever you do, like. Do we like? <laughs> well, okay, okay, but it is. You miss our royal family. Let's admit it. You miss having a monarch. Well, <laughs> is that true? Actually, yeah. the degree to which people pay attention to like royal weddings. Yeah. That may. I mean, I'm you a guys guy like, who you've has. Got, you've got buyer's remorse, haven't you? Well, I certainly do. <laughs> no, there, there is no part of me that looks at a royal wedding and thinks, oh, gosh, I wish that was like, I, I wish I felt more okay. invested in that. Okay. But some people clearly do oh, because yeah. they are, they have like parties to watch other people's weddings yeah. in England. I frankly don't understand kind of 
the monarchy and like okay. celebrity culture just but it's not celebrity it. culture that is that is a very american statement the monarchy has nothing to do with celebrity okay well then explain it to me this is why Meghan markle went wrong because she saw this she thought i'll become an a-lister from being a d-lister and it's it's nothing to do with celebrity it's about service it's about duty it's about obligation it's about your country your nation it's so in, in england we put god Queen and country, or God, King and country, as in our order of of service and duty and obligation. That's the way it's always been, and the Queen or the King is accountable to God, but also to the people. Like we are her, his, or we are. I keep saying her because I'm thinking of the Queen, but of course we have a King now. We are His subjects. However, He is there to serve us. Uh, it's not the other way around, and we can see that in the way that Her Majesty lived and died. You know, the you, you talk about people tuning into royal weddings, but the Queen's funeral was the greatest Christian witness we've ever experienced since the resurrection. You know, 28 million people around the world tuned in for this very, very Christian, distinctly Christian service. That's never been done before. Not like that. Yeah. You you raise a really good point because yeah. I have, um, obviously not being English, I have really had no understanding of, and I, I've seen the royal family as kind of this. It, it does feel like celebrity, but you're telling me that as an Englishman, that yeah. it is a different, that's not what no, it is. No, it's a grind. They have to work every day, long hours. They're patrons of loads of charities and they, you know, they're going up at events and stuff, but they, they are selling the nation quite often. They are the, the face of the nation, but also they are a living embodiment of our nation. So you guys in America, you get behind your flag, right? That's your symbol of unity. That's what brings you together. We have our monarch. That is our living embodiment of our nation that we can all get behind, or we should at least be able to get behind. It's difficult when you... The, the problem with monarchs is sometimes you have good kings, sometimes you have bad kings, right? Well, yes. That's the problem with all people yes, in all positions, yes, of course. But yeah, I, I, in fairness, I will say that I have viewed kind of that whole royal family thing as more like somebody just like pick the Kennedys or like just some famous family to like right. be famous and we care about them because they're famous. Some of them are good. Some of them are not good. Well, it's, and, it's and the that's divine in, right of kings. So we, so God said you don't need a king. And we as people said we do want a king, right? This is, this, this is the right. story from the Bible. And so he gave us kings and we get the kings that we deserve. True. No, I, I that'll preach. Right. I mean, because now that we <laughs> now that we actually elect them, right? right. I mean, because it's it's even more it's even more true now. Um, gosh, I did not expect to start talking about the, the royal family, <laughs> but that, that that's a good but diversion. It's, it's also interesting because as Christians, we talk of Christ's kingship, but I find that that's quite often lost on people that don't have a monarch. As, as in that relationship with, with, with your king. What does it mean to have a king? Like we can talk about Christ as a prophet and Christ as a priest, but, but Christ as a king has a very different meaning. Do you think then a democratic sensibility has a difficulty understanding Jesus as Lord of Lords yes, and King his, of Kings? Yes, his lordship is quite foreign to people that don't understand that, that principle of lordship. Yeah. How do you see that? Well, again, it's about servant leadership, isn't it? It's about being the representative of the people, but also serving the people. It's, it's, a, it's an embodiment of the people. Um, rather, it's not, it's not about power. It's not about authority in that sense. It's the, it's the exact opposite. Is there a sense in which, like, Americans, of course, are very pro-freedom people mm, and pro-liberty. Yes, yes. Is there a sense in which those sensibilities kind of war against the Christian call for submission? Yes, there is. Uh, I think it's a very good thing to be pro-freedom, of course, but we have to put it within context because 
what we can often fall into the trap of is making idols of these things. For example, I'm, I'm always advocating for free speech. I think free speech is fundamental in any Western civilization and in any democracy. It's important to our way of life. However, we can't make an idol of free speech. So when people say to me, well, why do we, why do we need free speech? It's so that we can have the freedom to worship the whole point of free speech is that we can have the freedom to proclaim the good news so we can say this is the gospel, this is the truth as revealed to us. Without that free speech, we, our freedom to worship gets restricted. And we see this all across the world in places that don't have free speech. So it's, it's a means to an end. It's not the end in and of itself. And quite often people look at the uh, amendments as ends in and of themselves. And actually in this part of the world, we often make an idol of democracy as well. Democracy is great. Democracy is good. But it's the least worst option. It's not the thing to be striving towards. I have been thinking about this specific point in the context of abortion lately. Mm. Um, you may or may not know that in the state of Ohio, there was recently a vote on abortion that uh, the pro-abortion side won. It was a, a really disappointing um, result for those of us who care about the life issue. Mm. Um, but there is this sense in, in people, even like Republicans, people on the right politically in America here, have said, well, I don't like it, but that's what was decided and the people spoke. Mm. And the sentiment is that therefore there's some goodness in this because this result was reached democratically. Yeah. And that to me has raised the question that you just made of, yes, we like democracy. Yes, we like freedom. But at what point mm. do those things become an excuse or the means by which we are doing evil things and somehow we're supposed to be fine with it because yeah. we're pro-democracy and democracy did that. If democracy is not the goal, if freedom is not the goal, how would you describe what the goal is? Well, God is the goal, right? <laughs> the praise and worship of God, the greater glory of God, all of this should be our goal. Our objective is to be good, become good people, to become holy. We strive towards goodness and holiness, and we do that through, well, monitoring the way that Christ modeled how to live a life, how to be Christ-like. And so if, if what we are doing is leading us to Christ, then it's good. If it's not leading us to Christ, then it's bad. It doesn't matter if it was dem democratically decided or not. But it also comes down to what do we mean by freedom? Right, Freedom within the context of God means freedom to worship God. And we often think of freedom as in freedom from something, like we're free from restrictions, we're free from whatever. But actually, it's freedom to, it's freedom to worship God. And God gives us restrictions, God gives us boundaries. He says, here are some rules, here are some laws. Live by these rules, live by these laws, then you will live a good life. But we seem to think that freedom is, is absence of laws, absence of rules, and that's not good. You're, a lot of people will listen to this and say, you sound like a theocrat. Okay. That you're, your freedom, freedom is <laughs> the freedom to worship God. But yes, of course, not yeah. everybody agrees with your sense of who God is. So you're just trying to make everybody like you. My, it's my sense, what's my sense of God is, God is, regardless of what my sense of him is, God is, full stop. And freedom is, is obedience to God. But can that – is that inconsistent with a pluralistic society? No. Why not? Plural, pluralism is demonic. It is the idea that there are multiple truths when the scriptures teach us that Jesus Christ is the truth. Truth is objective. He is a person and we know him. Agreed. Yeah. So there can't be – there's not multiple Jesuses. Therefore, there's not multiple truths. 
this whole idea that I, I have my truth, you have your truth. It's like, no, we have a perspective. There is right. a truth, and we should be striving towards the truth. But should different opinions, perspectives be tolerated within a culture? Because we, we, of course, know in your, in your context in England and ours mm. in America, there are lots of different religious convictions. Right. And those are, I mean, at least in the American context, they were primarily all just different Christian denominations. Now that's not the case. Yeah. Now the, the, the differences are much grander than that. And so if we have this sense that the purpose of freedom, and yeah. in a Christian sense it's true, the purpose of freedom is to be free to worship God, but other, as others would say, I don't even think your God exists. You believe in the flying spaghetti monster. You can worship him if you want. Right. You know That's what free people can do, yeah. but you can't make me do that and define freedom no. that way. Right. That, so that was the whole purpose of America, right? It was, it was a nation founded on Christian principles, and the, and the, the whole purpose of having the freedom to, uh, of expression was that we could have freedom of worship, and that meant that anyone could worship however they saw fit. It was implied that we'd be worshiping the, the Christian God, the, the one true God, but that was an Im- implication. It wasn't um, explicit, and that meant that people of other faiths could worship too, which is fine. But the the end goal should be to win them over for Christ. We should be to sol- to to help save them. That should be the end political goal or the end goal for the church? Well, just the end goal, right? For us. As people. Yeah. Right. And certainly I, as Christians. Yeah. So that that, com- that freedom, because it's the same thing that God offers us, right? Free, free will. We are, yeah. He says, I, am, I exist. I am true. I love you. You can love me back, but you don't have to. He, can't, he doesn't make yeah. us. He offers us that choice, and that, therefore we provide that choice for people too. But that's very different to tolerance. And, and we talk a lot about tolerance in, in a modern society, but tolerance is not a Christian virtue. Agreed. Agreed. Now, if you lived here, people would call you a Christian nationalist. Good. For sure. Yeah. How do you define that term? Uh, wanting to bring Christianity to the nation. <laughs> is it that simply? Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, that definitely, yes. I would say, I mean, hopefully everybody is a Christian nationalist in that sense. Um, but it's look if we we have commandments, and we used to base our laws off them, right? So the the English common law system was based on the Ten Commandments. The the American Constitution was based on English common law. Like all this, all these things link back to the truth, to the faith. And we used to think that this is good, this is true. So we must live our life by these rules, and that's that's where we get our way of life from. Is there any limit to you? Uh, is there any limit to what you would want the government to be able to do in order to promote, encourage, compel your understanding, our understanding of who God is? I wouldn't talk about our understanding. I'd talk about going back to the scriptures. Go, the scriptures, So yes. I'd say, yeah, so our laws should be based on the Ten Commandments. So we can't steal. We can't kill. You know, take, take these – because otherwise, what do, we, what do we base our laws on? And people often talk, conflate morality and legality. And there is a massive chasm between those two. There's a massive chasm between justice and legality. You know, just because something's legal doesn't mean it's just. And it sure as hell doesn't mean it's merciful. doesn't mean it's true. Uh, so we have to bring these things into alignment. We went very deep, very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna now back up on that whole, uh, the whole like a royal family thing. Totally derailed me, but this is, this is good. And right. so I want to find a little bit about 
you, mm. find out a little bit about you and how you became That's my this least Christian topic. nationalist. <laughs> no, but it's, I, I think it's a, it helpful. I'm not a Christian nationalist. Background. I'm a Christian. Well, I, I know. but The fact that we have to paint it as, as a new label just shows how yes. far we've come from the faith, well, right? Because we've come, become so pluralistic. Yes. Um, what do you want to know? Well, I mean, the only thing I know about you is that you're from England and you're an Anglican priest, basically, and that you argued that the, 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 the church should not uh, embrace same-sex marriage. Cannot. Cannot. Yeah. Cannot. Should not. But uh, tell me a bit about your, your backstory, as the kids say these days. Oh, goodness. Um, I grew up in a town called Mansfield in Nottinghamshire, which is uh, in the bounds of Sherwood Forest, which is obviously where Robin Hood is from. Yes, uh, he was my childhood hero. I used to have bows and arrows and a green felt hat uh, and run through Sherwood Forest. Uh, that was how we grew up, just just playing around outside before the days of smartphones. Um, yeah, it was great. Loved it. It was a community area where I knew my neighbors. They knew me. Um, they could hold me accountable if I was a naughty child. Um, Were you a naughty child, Calvin? No, not really. No, I was quite good as a kid. But uh, yeah. in my teenage years, I was quite rebellious. Okay. But I suppose we all are. We all kind of push the boundaries and experiments uh, in our teenage years. Uh, but it was important because the reason I raised that is because I think that's what we're supposed to be like. We're supposed to be communities. We're supposed to live with our neighbors and know our neighbors and love our neighbors. And in the modern world, we don't seem to, not as much, certainly not in the cities. We've become so disparate. And actually, I think technology is, has, a, has a part to play in that, in that we will talk all the time about how connected we are. But actually, we're more disconnected. In many ways, you know, I see people, it's one of my biggest pet peeves, and I do it myself, I'm guilty of this myself, so I'm not pointing the finger, but walking around on smartphones, it's so frustrating. You know, you're nearly bumping into people, but it's also, you're not engaging with other people. We live in our own individual worlds now. It's awful. And, you know, the the disconnect of, on the way here, I came via Heathrow Airport. They've got self-check-in now, not just to print out your boarding pass, but to put your bags on the things. You weigh it yourself, you put your little sticker on yourself, and then I went into the pub to get something to eat before my flight. They've got self-pull bars, you know, you can pull your own pint. I didn't have to interact with another human being all the way through. I mean, I did, I sat there and I chatted to this lovely old man who I think was reintroduced to Christ, Uh, which is, is, has entirely made my trip. But, we don't have to anymore. That's yeah. a problem. And it's, this is technology. It's disconnecting us. It is a tool of the enemy. Yeah. So your teenage years, how did you come to... <laughs> You're good. You, no, I, I'm I tried to shift to, the conversation I know off you of did. me. I know you did. <laughs> and and, and, and I, will, I will tolerate and enjoy the parentheticals, but I am going to find out something about you. Okay. So how did you come from being a somewhat rebellious teenager, kind of you know, trying to discover who you really are and mm. what you believe to now, I mean, many would consider you to be a, you know, culture warrior, agitator, Anglican priest. Um, this was just the path that he had yeah. laid out for me. Yeah. And I learned to walk the path and to try and be obedient. I say try because I struggle as we all do and we have to continually check ourselves. But I try at least to walk through the doors that God opens to me and he has led me to where I am. And he, he's, I at least hope, using me for his intentions. Yeah. How did you come to be the guy who was invited to defend the position that, uh, that Christianity cannot embrace same-sex marriage? I think probably by default because so few of us in England are standing up at the moment. Um, so when you are someone that stands up, you get asked to speak. 
I wish there were more of us. I really do. There are a few. I'm not on my own, but it does feel like that sometimes, at least in England. Um, how did I get there? I oh, The long story or the, sto the short story, um, I was in technology after university, and it was a... Uh, very superficial lifestyle. It was it was about having fun and making money. It was like about professionally, you were you worked stuff. in tech. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and it was, it was just very worldly, and I, I quickly cottoned on that this wasn't fulfilling. I wasn't content, uh, and I real I found the differentiation between happiness and contentedness, and I wanted to do something more rewarding, and I wanted to give something back from myself. Um, so I entered teaching for a whole host of reasons, but I became a school teacher. And that was when I realized that this was the start of my vocation and uh, the start of thinking about life in terms of vocations and, and duty and obligation and service. Uh, and when I was teaching, I was seeing some really, really horrible stuff. I was seeing left-wing indoctrination. Um, this was around the time of Brexit and teachers were really pushing remain and denigrating people that were leave supporters and there was a, an othering going on, and it was uniform. Uh, so I started writing about it, uh, just writing about it in the local press or blogging about it. And, and I put my name to it because I, I, I really don't like when people do like secret teacher or something like that. I just find it a bit sly. Like if you see something that's wrong and you want to, you want to point it out, expose it, then put your name to it. If you want to speak the truth, put your name to it. So I did. And then the tabloids asked me one time, do you still believe this? I was like, yeah, this is what I'm seeing every day. This is what's going on. There's Can you, what were you seeing? Explain what you were seeing. Um, so for example, during Brexit, um, I was on team vote leave. So I was a regional coordinator. Uh, I was going around knocking on doors, asking people in my area which way they were going to vote. And I was giving them literature to help encourage them to vote to leave the European Union so that we could become a sovereign nation again. And... I was very open about this. I didn't see it as a secret. I thought we, were, we are a nation divided uh, on this opinion and therefore in a pluralistic nation, all opinions should be equal. Little did I know that was not the case. Um, and going around school, well, actually on the day of Brexit, I was euphoric because we won and I never thought in a million years we'd, won, we'd win. I thought it was a wild dream. But I walked into my school ready to teach computer science and the head teacher and the assistant head teacher pulled me aside and said, Calvin, we know that you're a Brexiteer. I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> sounds a bit like an accusation, but yes, I am. <laughs> um, just be very careful today. Don't obviously talk about it. A lot of people are upset. And I was like, well, it's nothing to do with my job. I'm here to teach computing and programming. It wouldn't come up in conversation. And they were like, yeah, we've got lots of European students, obviously, so don't mention it around them. I'm thinking, you clearly don't understand what this is about. This is not an anti-European thing. You know, I have most of the people I was out campaigning with were French, German, Polish, etc. It wasn't anti-European. It was anti-EU. It was an anti-federalist stance. It was a pro-sovereign stance. Anyway, um, so I was like, yeah, of course I won't talk about it. But as I walked around school, all I saw that day were other teachers talking about, oh, it's awful. And, and they've got a similar thing in America with Donald Trump. Oh, it's really bad, isn't it? And I, I quickly realized that it wasn't that we weren't, weren't allowed to talk about Brexit. It's that I wasn't allowed to talk about Brexit because my perspective was the wrong perspective. And this really peeved me off. But I wrote about this. And this is what the tabloids picked up on. You know, the there was an announcement over the tannoy in the school. The chapel is open for people that are upset about today's result. And I looked at the chapel. They replaced the altar um, where, the, where you'd normally see a cross. There was an EU flag. 
<laughs> talk about idolatry. Um, and so, I, yeah, I wrote about it and the tabloids picked up on it and said, is this true? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And back it up. And uh, they said, can we print it? And, yeah, of course you can. And then like that, it was in all of them and the broadsheets too. And it was just crazy. And then off the back of that, people started asking me my, my opinion on education. I, and I continued to give it and talk about what I saw, uh, the massive left-wing indoctrination. Um, it wasn't just on issues of Brexit. It was on issues of race and gender and all the things you, I'm sure you can imagine. But I just didn't think parents were aware. And I thought if parents were aware, they'd be gobsmacked. What, what year is this approximately? This stuff so this is 2016. That's when we had the Brexit. Brexit was 2016. Yeah. So that was the same time that Donald Trump. Oh, yeah, yeah. All this was happening at the same time. Yeah. Which was a shocking electoral result as well. It's like the Metropolitan Liberal League couldn't believe that we dare to vote in a way that they didn't like. Explain, because, uh, you know, we can apologize for our American sensibilities that are not like. Right. Most of Europe knows more about what's going on in America than America does what's going on in other places. Why would people be so bothered? Mm. Because what you're describing is kind of like the sentiment that that we saw happen here with COVID. Like, oh, you can only communicate one position on this particular issue. And if you try to say something else, you'll be punished. That was framed, whether true or not, as an issue of life and death. So you can understand why somebody would say, don't lie to people because then they're going to die. Okay, we'll we'll set that aside. But we understand kind of the the perceived seriousness of that issue. But you're describing something similar on this Brexit debate. Why is it that people would be so bothered by your position that they would, as you've described there, basically say, you can't say that, but other people can be free to say, you know, to provide the other. Well, so so the Remain side would see as xenophobic, as racist, because there were conversations about immigration. So as a, as a lever, I would say we need to control immigration to our country. And as part of the EU, we didn't have any control. Anyone from any EU nation could come and live in Britain and gain the benefits of living in Britain, right? Was that a primary argument for it was, it the was, leave? Yeah, sure, it was one okay. of them, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the main argument was sovereignty in that the laws being made in our country should be made by people that we elect, falling back to democracy, right? But what was happening was in Brussels, people were making laws that would dictate our lives in England. And we were like, well, why are these foreign people creating laws in a foreign country that are dictating our lives when we can't elect them and we can't get rid of them if we don't like them? Like we have awful politicians, but at least they're ones that we vote in, right? Well, Americans kind of understand that sensibility because way back in the day, we called that no taxation (laughs) without representation. representation, And we threw some tea and some water in Boston. And then there was this whole thing. We love our tea. We haven't got over that. (laughs) You haven't got over that. Okay. So that seems like a similar sentiment to to what Americans should be sympathetic to is, yeah, if you're going to make decisions, you better be accountable for us. That was the sovereignty side. On the immigration side, I was saying, look, I know people from Australia that would be great teachers and I need to hire te- – this was an, an assistant principal. I need to hire these teachers. But it's difficult. It's impossible to get them over here on a visa. Whereas if someone lives in um, Eastern Europe, they can come straight over and they can under- undercut British workers uh, no problem with, with jobs that we don't need to be filled. So it doesn't add up. We need a points-based system similar to what Australia has. At that point, I wasn't even arguing to halt immigration. I was just arguing to control it. I think at this point, now I'd probably argue to halt immigration because there's far too much of it. But just having that conversation, people were like racist, xenophobe, etc. And so it was seen as the wrong argument to be made. And that's that's why the metropolitan elite didn't like it. But also there's a disconnect here. It's the, the lefties, well, I say the lefties, it wasn't a left and right issue, but the Remainers said, if we leave the European Union, there will be an economic price to pay. 
And the levers were saying, we would rather pay a short-term price for our freedom, our sovereignty, and control of our borders than we would stay in and, and not have a cut to GDP. And they can't understand it. Has that economic price been paid? Did that materialize, the threat? It's, I mean, it's difficult to, to discern at this point because we are in a cost of lockdown crisis. So we're all paying that price. Every, you know, every country is struggling at the moment. And people in our country who are Remainers will say, oh, it's because of Brexit. But actually, how is Brexit affecting America? You guys are having the same problem that we're having. So I don't think it's as clear cut as that. But even if it was, I'd do it again. The immigration challenge that you described there is, again, very similar to some of the stuff that we're dealing with yeah. right now. Since Joe Biden became president, something like 8 million people have come across our it's southern ridiculous. border. Absolutely ridiculous. Which is – because I, mean, I, I think that, that that is a combination of the 6 million that we know have come right. and then the 2 million that we assume have come that we have not – kept track of yeah. in any way. And I'm pulling that number from a... I've seen him talk about this and say it's a good thing that, that white, yeah. white Americans are being replaced. So it, that's a good thing. Well, frame that in a biblical way for us. Well, first in a secular way, that's racist. Well, in a secular way to say getting rid of the white people is good. Yeah, that's racist. Well, sure. <laughs> Naturally, yes. Um, but there is, it, more broadly, yeah. the idea of borders. Yeah. Now, we know that immigrants, you know, Christians are commanded to love the outcast, mm. to be hospitable to the yeah. foreigner, yeah. to all of those things. Yeah. Why does that not mean that you in England, if somebody wants to come from mm. Hungary, or we in America, if somebody wants to come from Guatemala or yeah. San Salvador, or wherever else they're coming from, mm. that they should be able to come on in because it's pretty good here. And why should we hog that to ourselves? Yeah, that's a good question. So nations and borders are God-ordained. God created the idea of nations and tribes after the Tower of Babel for our own purposes. And it's biblical. But, but broader than that, the family is the first community that we belong to. The nation is the next community we belong to. And we are advised against globalism. We're advised against one world government and, and a borderless society for obvious reasons that, there are, that are clear in revelations. And the, the left seem to think that we have to welcome the sojourner permanently. Now, the sojourner should be welcomed. Of course, the traveler should be welcomed. But that doesn't mean the traveler should stay forever. And actually, it's quite uncharitable to have an open border situation where you say, okay, our country's great, come and live here, leave your country and just desert it. And when we, when we have a situation like we have in England where we have young uh, military-aged men crossing the borders daily, illegally, we've got, we had net, uh, one million immigrants last year, which is far too many for us. We're over capacity, it doesn't work. You know, healthcare's at strain, education's at strain, et cetera. But when we have these young military-aged men coming over, deserting their home nation, not bringing their women and children with them, so it's clearly not an issue of, of, of refugee or of hospitality. It's an issue of, I mean, I would, I would probably use a strong word and say this is an invasion. This is a cultural invasion. Because well, 8 million people. I mean, most of the states in the United States for us yeah. are smaller than that. Right. There's yes. only, I think there's only like 11 or 12 states that have more than That's 8 million people. But, but also, it's, we're not pragmatic about this. I would say, look, let's look at what's happening in South Sudan or northern Nigeria, or Armenia, or, you know, let's look at places where Christians are being persecuted, and let's support them and bring, and bring them over if they need to, but help them in their homeland too. But we're not doing that. And we, we're seeing that it's mostly Islamic states that we're taking uh, immigrants from. People, great people, 
all people are all, all people have a capacity for good and evil but the ideology itself of Islam is incompatible with Christian values incompatible with Western values so why are we prioritizing Islamism over Christianity that that's the question and, and there but I think a lot of people hear that question and just your framing of it yeah. in terms of Islamism over Christianity yeah. as itself racist and xenophobic. And that's the problem, even because you're thinking of it in those yeah, ways. Yeah. I mean, this is the way it's been framed. So we had, I don't know how it's happened over here, but in England, we had uh, a prime minister called Tony Blair, uh, leader of the Labour Party, had a stonking majority, majority in 1997. And he said, look, we want mass immigration. And what we're going to do is paint the right as racist and xenophobic for even questioning the idea that diversity diversity is our strength and that immigration is a good thing. And that's what they've done ever since 97. And immigration has been on the rise even after Labour Party, the Labour Party left and Conservatives got in government because everyone's afraid to have a conversation about it. Because if you do, you're labelled as a racist and a xenophobe. And we have, to, we have to get over that and say, okay, call me whatever you like. It doesn't matter. I want to protect my nation. I want to protect my borders. I want to protect my family. And that's what it is. It's protecting your family. Why do you think that's so effective? the accusations of racism. Because we all want to be liked, right? We want to be seen as nice people. Nice has so much power when actually we should be focused on good. Good is far better than nice. What's the difference? Well, nice is, a, nice is superficial. Nice is how we appear to each other. Good is often harder than nice. Good is difficult. And that's, in fact, that's what virtue signaling is. Virtue signaling is saying to the world, look at me, I'm nice. I, please think of me as a good person. It's far easier than doing good works. To do good works is difficult. It takes sacrifice. It takes contribution. It's far easier to say, actually, I've put a black box up on my Instagram. That, look at me, I'm a good person. You know, I've put hashtag BLM or uh, a black fist or you know, a rainbow in my my bio, look at me as a good person. That's easier than going out and feeding the hungry or clothing the homeless and actually doing something good. You taught also, and you've mentioned kind of some of the challenges you had there. Describe, if you can, mm. uh, how different or similar is that than what we've been dealing with the U.S. And for, you know, we've been, ha we've been having all of these wars around um, – curriculum content yeah. a lot of it has to do with you know the gender ideology which has certainly made it into schools mm. lots of debates around critical race theory and then critical theory more broadly yeah. which is kind of comes to a, uh, encapsulate wokeness just in general this yeah. idea that everybody's an oppressor and oppressed and kind of in, imposing that framework on um, children and then how how similar or different mm. as you can understand them are the education issues in England to what we're dealing with? Incredibly similar. Uh, I've been out of teaching a few years now because I went to seminary to train for the priesthood. But in that short time, it has, they've rapidly increased the wokeness. And um, it's evil what they're doing. They're teaching children as young as five about masturbation. You know, they're, they're playing games where you roll a dice and, you, and, it, and it falls on a, a sexual activity. You have to describe that sexual activity. They're sending children home with homework to ask their father about erections. It's, it is wicked, absolutely wicked what they're doing in the name of diversity, inclusion, and equality. And it all comes down to these, as you say, the critical theories of queer theory, gender theory, and critical race theory, which are all part of one thing. They are neo-Marxist, but deeper than that, they're satanic. It, all of this is an attack on our Lord. How so? Well, look at their objectives. So whether you take critical race theory, gender theory, queer theory, take any of them and how they manifest themselves. So let's look at race, Black Lives Matter, 
right? This idea that, uh, as you mentioned, black people are all oppressed and white people are all racist. Of course, it's a nonsense because it's rewriting original sin. It's saying as a white person, you have a sin that you were born with, you inherited from your fathers. But it's worse than that because it's a sin you can't repent of. There's no contrition, doesn't matter how, how sorry you are, because there's no absolution. You, you cannot be saved. You are condemned, is what they're saying. So that's counter scriptural but also on a deeper level black lives matter in their manifesto said we want to um we want to smash heteronormativity and destroy the patriarchy all of these things say this this you know whether it's whether it's the uh, rainbow crowd or the or blm crowd they all say the same things smash heteronormativity and destroy the patriarchy heteronormativity means ordinary family life the nuclear family marriage which we know to be between one man and one woman for the goodness of, of the family, the community, and for the greater worship of God, uh, to be open, to be blessed with children. Like all of this is seen as a, as a bad thing. The liberals used to say, we have to promote the idea of alternative lifestyles as well as normative lifestyles. But now we've gotten to a point where we want to smash heteronormativity. So we want to do away with people getting married and having children and promote indecency, degeneracy, and all of these, what they would call alternative lifestyles as the new normal. We would literally die out as a species so we, there will be no people to worship God. But on the other hand, destroy the patriarchy. What does that mean? Well, what, who is the ultimate patriarch? It's God our Father, right? He provides and protects. He tells us to refer to him as Abba, to call him Dad. He quite literally sets boundaries for us to live by, as we talked about earlier, the Ten Commandments and, and the wider divine law. He, he is our father figure. So de destroying the patriarchy means destroying God. It's, that's what all of this is about. It's, an all it's all an affront on God our Father. There is so much here, and I'm going to just take a break now because <laughs> we're going to have to go to episode two. And I really want to get into um, the future of Western civilization as you see it. it, okay. it this, is, this has been – I think it's helpful. In some ways, it's comforting to realize you know, all the stuff that we – complain about or concerned about, and those are different things, mm. in our American context, this is not just here. Oh, no. This is a, this is a mind virus and an ideology that exists far beyond our borders. Mm. I think you framed it well in a spiritual sense that we aren't wrestling against flesh and blood, no. but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age, mm. and we have to keep that in mind. Um, but... Uh, in the next episode, and I'll tease that uh, for those who co come back for that, I want to I want to get your view of the future mm. and what that looks like, and for the church and for the West, is the West dead, or is there going to be a cultural uh, restoration, revolution, all of those things? Because uh, there's just so much more here. But uh, okay. thanks for your time, and friends, thanks for. Uh, joining this one uh, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you are finding us today and as always if you have comments and questions because i know that this has been very provocative we'd love to hear from you uh, email me at outstanding at washingtonstand.com i'm joseph backholm we'll see you next time this has been outstanding outstanding is a production of the washington stand where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview